Hello and welcome to the Documentary Photography Review podcast with myself, Rebecca Enderby and co-presenter Chris King. In this series of podcasts, we interview documentary photographers working on stories local to them, where they live or where they are from. Today, we speak to Sicilian photographer and filmmaker Roberto Zampino, who has lived and worked in Italy, Cyprus and London as a freelance and commercial photographer and photography teacher. Roberto specialises in travel, sport, portrait and social documentary photography and describes himself as an out-there photographer and he explains why in this interview. We talk in depth about his recent project, Piscatori, which documents changing fishing practices in the villages in Sicily. Developments in technology, overfishing and depleting stock numbers mean that traditional practices are being eroded in favour of practices which mean larger catches. Roberto discusses his motivations behind the project, his experience working with the fishermen and the physical and photographic challenges of working at sea. As always, show notes with information on Roberto's work and any photographers, exhibitions, organisations and so on mentioned in this podcast are available at documentaryphotoreview.com forward slash podcasts and then navigate to the page for Roberto's podcast. Whilst there, please do take time to explore the site. You'll find a diverse mixture of documentary photography from around the globe. So now for our conversation with Roberto Zampino. Enjoy. off with how you got into photography and mm -hmm. documentary photography in particular. One day I parked my motorbike in front of a photographer. I was looking for a summer job and I was like, oh wow, okay, let's ask if we need somebody to hold flashes and this kind of thing. I went in, in, inside the shop, I asked him, I told me, yeah, I actually we work tomorrow and my assistant just didn't show up last time, so I want to change it. Okay, I come. And so I started working with a photographer. Mm -hmm. But since since I was young, I was interested in um, portraying people, drawing, and in art. I used to use my, f uh, my mother's film camera. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of interested in art and photography as well. But that one was my epiphany to photography. And I started with this guy. And after I thought, OK, I'm not going to be a photographer because of this guy. <laughs> <laughs> it was quite horrible to work with him at the beginning. Unfortunately, he doesn't speak English. <laughs> um, but then I moved on and I always wanted to be a, either a journalist or something which could involve uh, traveling or telling stories, uh, documentary somehow. So at the end of my high school, I needed to, to decide my university. And the best uni university for me was Academy of Fine Art in Multimedia Communication. Uh, so it was video, photography, uh, along with fine art. So all my passion were kind of linked together in this university mm. uh, and then basically I moved on and in the meanwhile I was working in Cyprus as a wedding photographer and commercial photographer for um, uh, yeah, to earn my living basically as soon as I earned enough to stay here in London for a while I, I moved here to, to do this LCC master in photojournalism and documentary photography which was a big gate into the world actually Right. Mm -hmm. And how did you find the course? Well, the course was was interesting, but the, the, the most important thing of the course, I think, were the people I met there. Mm -hmm. Because now I have contacts basically everywhere else in the world and all great people coming from different backgrounds. So I learned, I think, much more from them than from the course itself. Yeah. And did the course help refine your your storytelling abilities and, and your ability to kind of... Absolutely. The course helped me to find what I don't want to do, what right. I want, but basically what I don't want to do. And because it kept me pushing out there and trying new stuff so I could realize w what I didn't like and what I like and all these kind of things. Yeah, and then, you know, photography is like, uh, the more you see, the more you get inspired. And this course just gave me so much to... Uh, to see and to look at and information about other photographers, how did they work and all these things. And for example, I did the first assignment was a small story in Sicily and I completely messed it up. Like <laughs> just because I wanted to try so many things that right. I completely messed it up. And then the thing that I really learned from this course is that you just need to follow what you like. Mm. It's useless to be as other people want you to be because otherwise, yeah, you, make ma you may make money, but it's not just your photography. So as soon as I started doing what I liked, I started actually getting exposed and work coming and everything. Mm. 
And you call yourself an out there photographer. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so exactly. What, what do you mean by that? And what kind of stories does that mean you like to photograph? Uh, well, I was, I was thinking about it's all these branding things mm -hmm. because we had the lesson about branding and how to get exposed and everything. And then I was analyzing my type of work and my personality. And I didn't want to be a portrait photographer because I didn't want to be stuck in any category, street photographer, port, port, uh, portrait photographer, or outdoor photographer. Uh, I wanted to see who I was, and I love outdoor, but I love to be out there with people as well. So I like to be out there even in a studio photography. I like to talk to people and understanding them and getting completely involved in the story I want to tell. So this is the kind of out there photographer. So either it is, whether it is a climbing session photography, for example in CC, so I'm gonna be out there with them, climbing with them, experiencing exactly what they're doing, or uh, the fisherman story, I spend with them a couple of months. So yeah, that's how I explain this out there, because you need to be there, you need to be with them, you need to understand them before shooting. Yeah. yeah. I did um, a reportage in, in Peru uh, with a population called Chiliwani. I was the first photographer ever been there, and in order to reach there, you need to climb up to 4,500 meters and the people were friendly but really suspicious about this camera and everything. So for the first weeks I just could not even take a picture and because I needed to get involved and that's I think the out there terms come from. And does it influence the kind of projects you're drawn to photographing or are you open to everything? I open to everything uh, which appeals me. Okay. Yeah. I mean, if it's something which that, is? which maybe even studio photography, mm -hmm. but as far as it's something that I'm interested in, and yeah, but it dragged in most of the commercial, even the commercial I did, they were dragged by the idea. Okay, I need to be out there to do this kind of commercial, and a, a fashion um, brand, coming fashion brand, asked me to take those pictures for them just because of this, because they didn't want the classical fashion photography. Mm -hmm. They wanted a kind of out there street photography for their products. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's kind of working. Yeah. <laughs> and I like you picked it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did, yeah. So you've said that work from one job got you another job in a different, different kind of uh, <coughs> area. So how are you exposing yourself? How are you getting people to be aware of your existence and your work? <laughs> But basically, I wake up at 5, 5.30 in the morning and then I start sending emails to all the potential clients. Right, okay. Even those that I know that they will never consider me. But just to say, hello, I'm here. Right. In a couple of years, you will notice me more, but just to let you know that I'm here. So usually, uh, I, I, I send emails to photographers that I like, just to, uh, to tell them that I like their work and to ask them some advices and what, and most of them actually, they answer to me. Right. Okay. Yeah, some great photographers answered mm -hmm. to me. One of them was Tim Flack, for example, uh, the British photographer, you know? Mm -hmm. He answered to me, he told me coming over, or uh, a lot of other, uh, Martin Hartley is a polar uh, photographer. Mm -hmm. He told me, yeah, let's meet at the Telegraph outdoor uh, show and we talk. He offered me a lot of, he gave me a lot of tips. So yeah, photographers are actually really open. When, when you don't ask them directly, uh, can you do something for me? But you know, you just open up and you express your appreciation and they're really open. And then yeah, I just send tons of emails uh, daily and I think social media works a lot. Mm -hmm. For example, all, most of my job are coming from my website and social media. Right. Uh, I think the, you get, really exposed now so, and I bet this podcast is <laughs> it will get me some exposure I hope so so how are you getting social media to work for you uh, social media well I don't really like a lot of Facebook mm -hmm. but I understand that it's really important to get exposed I started uh, these social media things when I started teaching photography and doing workshops and everything was just spread around social media because uh, in that period I could not uh, advertise it in some other way and I found it that it worked really well and then basically if you just keep constant con uh, content inside uh, your page mm -hmm. it grows I can see the uh, my Facebook page for example it grows when I keep uh, a couple of posts per day and then it goes down when I go traveling I don't post anything so basically uh, it's just about 
constancy? How do you say constant? Consistency. Constancy. Okay, this one. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then Instagram. I think you should be must master of maximum two of them, social media, right. just not to get too scattered around. Mm-hmm. And then yes, you can get in touch with a lot of other photographers, exchange ideas, and mm-hmm. promote your works. And I think the, your work has to be out, out there. Also, the work yeah. has to be out yeah. there, you see. <laughs> one, of, one of the sentences that I really picked from the course was, if you take a picture, if you shoot anything that is not out there, there is no purpose for mm. to, to have taken this picture. In other words, you've got to share it with people. You've got to... Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Otherwise, so there's no point. Exactly. So if you, if you want to tell a story, even if it's not published, but keep telling this story. Yeah. So it somehow maybe get published or just at least you say something. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so you say you use Instagram as well? Yes. Yeah, I've recently gotten sort of into that. Do you, do you like using it? Well, I like it because it's more personal uh, kind of than the Facebook page. Because mm. in Instagram, I just sometimes post, you know, even what I'm going to hit. <laughs> Meanwhile, I will never do this for uh, fa- in a Facebook page. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I kind of like. I like the square size yeah. and shooting, thinking of the Instagram effect that I can put on my picture. Mm. Um, and and I ran a workshop about Insta- Instagram photography oh. and street photography through Instagram actually in Sicily and the work that came out was amazing right mm-hmm. yeah interesting and have you tried to carry out that workshop here in London uh, here in London I just ran a climbing workshop climbing photography right. workshop because I didn't have time right and now I'm planning to move and so I, I'm I, I'm not sure I will do any workshop now at this moment probably when I will come back Um, in Sicily I'm gonna run a couple of workshops again about travel photography Mm -hmm. and I really want to kind of exploit these new devices more mobiles (coughs) because I think they are perfect for street photography sometimes Mm. and you get unnoticed and you get amazing shots yeah it's very unobtrusive and and you can be quite clandestine really and they're fast yeah they're fast And because nobody, yeah, nobody realizes because for all they know, you're just playing with something or using an app or whatever. They don't know that yeah, you're actually exactly. taking a photo. So. But also, uh, it's very accessible for a lot more people, isn't it? Because yeah. nearly, nearly everybody or a, a huge amount of people would have a phone with a, ca- a decent camera. So it means it opens up to a lot of people that have to go out and buy an expensive camera or feel they haven't yeah, got exactly. the right kit. Yeah. And so you're climbing photography. Yeah. Um, is that that's commercial as well as documentary? You're going to be exploring documentary elements of it soon, but uh, so, sorry, you, you're climbing photography. Yeah. Has that been to date? Has that been purely commercial in nature, or uh, no? Uh, my climbing photography is going to be uh, <laughs> uh, something that I really want to carry on with because I, I really enjoy uh, being with those people, mm-hmm. you know, climbers or extreme sport people. And the f- um, so far, I just got some some interesting shots that have been published in a local magazine or specific magazine about climbing and things. So I would not call it commercial. I would always more depict it as a documentary photography as well, okay. because I'm documenting that particular moment and that particular effort in yeah. that area. Mm-hmm. So no, yet commercial. But for example, in San Vito Climbing Festival, the one that is going to be in Sicily uh, in May, I will be the main photographer. So I will document the whole uh, the whole event and then try to sell this those picture to magazine and thing and things like this okay. it, it may be in uh, commercial later on you know once you get exposed yeah. brand can call you can you do this in this area with this brand and things mm-hmm. but still I, I want to keep my documentary eyes kind mm-hmm. of yep because I think it's what really uh, differentiate me from maybe the classical commercial photographer yeah. right yeah mm-hmm. so it's documentary but with commercial potential yes Hmm. okay and in terms of your personal projects uh, we'll be discussing one in particular shortly but how do you go about uh, exploring a a personal project how do you initiate them okay first of all as I told you before you need to love what you do so you need to really like what you're gonna shoot and understanding why you're gonna shoot it so if you cannot answer to yourself why you really want to shoot it, I think you should think more about what you're gonna shoot. And, and then you just basically, what I do is I start researching 
all the previous projects that have been done about that issue of kind of thing that could be similar and see how other people approach the, the photography and the documentary itself. Uh, yeah, and then a lot of researches. And I find also 500px of Flickr really interesting to see how people would see it visually. The and what's already been done, right? Exactly, what yeah. has been done and yeah. what is really cliché, what's not. Mm. And, and then I moved to important photographer, uh, more, yeah, to see how they, they did it. Mm. And so how did you initiate Piscatori? Piscatori. Well, Piscatori is the, the word that in Sicily we use for fishermen. So this is the, the title of, the, of my book. Well, I started because I was really interested in the sea. And as a Sicilian, I always seen those people coming back with the boat and releasing nets, and I was really interested. And then when I got into photography, I always thought that the sea environment and all those people, they were really good subjects. So I just needed a story behind those people. And I love the fact that the particular village I, I, I should picture of, those, those communities, they are the... the the last using determin uh, specific methods to, to fish, but in a professional way. Right. So they keep using those traditional methods in a professional way, which was really intriguing. And they are slowly disappearing. So I wanted to see this changing of time from knowing exactly each rock on the bottom of the sea to having a rudder and, and going wherever the fish is. Mm -hmm. And it's changing because, because they're needing to catch more fish or why is the shift like happening? Well the shift is happening because of new technologies coming in. And they just want to and embrace they, And they just, yes exactly, but also because of the depleting of the fishes. Before it was much easier uh, to find some to yeah. fishes yeah. and now the, f the fish in the Mediterranean Sea is just dropping uh, drastically. And then even the new laws, they really don't help these traditional fishermen to, to keep fishing because they almost hamper them to keep up with their life and the fishing. I'm, a, I'm vegan, I don't eat fish. Oh so right. it was quite difficult to be there. But I understand also their reason to, because yes, it's not the best method, but it's not intrusive. It's not the kind of devastating method that I was expecting to be. Right. I went there without any, any opinion. I wanted just to document what was going on. So I thought that it, it would be a really devastating method, but actually it was much more sustainable, this method, than the mass production of controlled fishing. For example, this huge tank in the sea, mm. Mm -hmm. uh, which are supposed to, to be healthier for the environment. They're producing so much dung. Is it called dung? Mm -hmm. the, from the fishes and so much pollution that they're polluting all the area around. So it's, it's even worse, mm. you know, to have this mass productive, mass produ productive fishes, so controlled fishes, then actually go in there and fish it. So when the fishermen were going there, they were, there, there, is, there was an exchange between them and the fishing, and then the fishing, the, the fish that they were fishing. In the other case, it's just a massive production of dung and pollution that is affecting the, the whole area. So that's the farming of fish. Farming fish, exactly. Yep. Right. So, yeah, I went there with the idea that maybe farming would be better, kind of, for the environment and mm. to re-establish the natural uh, uh, balance. And they came back with a lot of notion and knowledge about all these things. For example, some regulation about tuna fishing. Mm. They are ampering the, tradi the traditional method, but actually, if you are an amateur, you can go and fish one fish per day. And I, it doesn't make sense. Meanwhile, the, the professional fishermen, for example, those guys, they can fish maximum 500 kilos per year over mm -hmm. month. I don't remember exactly. But it's something that a, an amateur can overcome in just a couple of days going out fishing. Right. Yeah, and then it doesn't apply, the rule doesn't, doesn't apply to, uh, for example, Japanese, you Japanese boat coming and fishing because they, they don't follow the rule of uh, European Union. Yeah. So they, they deplete our Mediterranean Sea and they, they live. And our fishermen are just, they, they need to, to go against law, you know, to risk fees and to risk uh, seizing, the, being seized their boat, just to survive. So this is the quota system yes. that the EU has, has in place that kind of ensures that they can only land so much fish in a year yes. and they're not allowed to go over that. 
Yes. And any time. Maintain stock levels. That's the idea, isn't yeah. it? Are the fishermen fishing for? Is it just the fish tend to stay in Sicily? Is it or is it exported? That's a good question. Most of the fish is sold within Sicily boundaries, but some delicacies are really uh, uh, sold just abroad because they're too expensive to be sold in Sicily. One of the delicacies is testicles of swordfish. And the main buyer, it's the queen. Oh, right. right? Yes. No. Or, or we have a salami made of, um, I don't remember which part of the tuna. And again, the main, the main buyer is the queen because it's a, such a delicacy, which is Hmm. Impossible to buy in Sicily because it's very expensive. Right. I will never buy something like this, not no. because I'm vegan, just because it's like, wow, just I will not. And yeah, and the, the guy told me, yeah, in, in England, we export it basically mostly in England, and the main buyer is the queen. Oh, wow, <laughs> next time I will bring her myself like a <laughs> gift, you know, <laughs> I brought you something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you say that the, the fishing methods are evolving traditional methods are, are dying out and, and more, more contemporary methods yeah, are being Yeah, the traditional embraced. methods are still almost the same. It's the way they approach the sea, which has changed a lot. Right. Okay. So before, before, before throwing a net in, uh, for the trawler, trawler, it's called trawler, right? Trawler. trawler. Yeah. Before throwing a net, they needed to be sure that there, was, uh, there, wasn't any, there were not rocks on the right. bottom, mm -hmm. not to destroy the net and they needed to be sure that the, the, the path that they were going to, uh, to lead. Now they're brothers, and every time they throw a net, they exactly know more or less what, is, what it is on the bottom of the sea. So oh, there's a radar. Huh? Radar. Yeah, it, yeah radar. radar. Right, okay. it's, yep. it's much easier. So basically now everybody can, can become a fisherman. Mm. So because of this more easy way, easier way to, to fish, the traditional method is still the same, but it's used widely. Yeah. Yeah. widely. Yeah. So the kind of the sort of skill set that was needed yeah, like exactly. to be a fisherman, you had to train up, you had to understand exactly, like the sea exactly. and, and the, the way it worked is, is kind of been lost. This is kind of yeah. been lost, exactly. Yeah. The, the, the knowledge of the sea yeah. has been lost. Yeah. So the knowledge of orienteering and I, I spoke, I did an interview with a, a guy who has been fishing for 65 years. He started when he was five years. He told me, my mother told me, busca tiupani, which in Sicily means go and gain your bread at five years old. So since five years old, he just fished all his life. Wow. He told me, I basically knew every single rock from this part of the coast to this part of the coast, which, which is like 60 miles. And he was fishing, and he was one of the best fishermen in, uh, in the world Sicily. He was known for this capability to remember exactly where the net was and uh, all these things. Meanwhile, now you just go there with the GPS, you save the point and you say, okay, I did this, but didn't work. Let's do something else. So, for for example, with a the trawler, uh, they add something like seven thousand dots in this map, wow. and with all the um, rock or uh, path that they, fa they already followed, and where the fish are, and all these things. And that's purely within the Mediterranean region. Yes, exactly. Yeah. The maximum that we can go it's uh, close to Malta or. Sometimes they went to Greece or North Africa, more or less. I think that's really interesting. This sort of the shift and the change in the technology, which really like devalues that kind of local knowledge. That's yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because before, you needed really to learn a yeah. lot about fishing. Now you just need to learn more or less how, how the radar works, how to drive a boat. It's still hard. It's super hard work, but knowledge-wise, it's much easier. Yeah, and also kind of an understanding and appreciation of the sea and the fish. Yes, yeah. that's what I noticed that, for example, the oldest fishermen, they were the more attached to the sea. Mm. This guy, uh, he told me, I, I cannot live without, without my boat, without my, my sea. And the oldest, they were relating to their boat as a second wife. So I got two wives, yeah. and so I go to one or to the other. The new one, the new fishermen, they more, they approach it as a, just a job. There is no other way to live in Sicily, and so let's become a fisherman. Does fishing um, take, is that a large kind of part of the economy, the job market there? Or? In Sicily, I would not say it's a large part, it's a good part of okay, the economy, yeah. but I would not say it's a really big part of the economy. How did you get access to uh, these fishermen? Uh, I was looking for boats to approach, so I went to the local harbor and I just started asking to everybody. And then when I came back a bit, 
defeated because everybody was like, ah, if you if you feel sick, we are not gonna drop you back, and you're gonna be sick because of the the sea and everything. I was speaking with my mom because that period was, I think, Easter time. And she told me, oh, why don't you try with the association? There was an association in this, in this small village. And I spoke with them and they were really happy to, to accept me. Right. You know, to show to the rest of the world what actually is fishing down there in the city. And because of the association, I could get access to other boats. So I spoke with the main guy in the associ association and introduced me to the first two boats. And then from there, they, almost, they were almost happy to have me aboard because they were like, oh wow, we got a, like a photographer, somebody's interested in our job. Yeah. So I think when you make people understand and, uh, that you're interested in what they, they do, they actually start realizing, wow, maybe it's interesting what I'm doing. They take it so, for, so much for granted, you know, the, the sea and everything. And then you are interested in that particular thing and they question themselves, why are you interested? I mean, I've been doing it for 25 years, nobody's been interested in this. Yeah. So they were happy to... Uh, so you were the, f the first photographer that ever had like, approached them to want to do stories? Uh, in such a way, yes. Yeah. They had some other uh, kind of photographer, um, uh, amateurs that went there, and or friends who took some picture, but neither, either, neither a, a body of work nor professional photographer. And, and were you sick? No, never. Wow, I would never. be. Oh, yeah, I <laughs> yeah, guess and, and the guy was really surprised. Actually, one <laughs> of the pictures, um, I, I got in touch with Geo Magazine. You know Geo Magazine? Geo? Geo Magazine. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they would like to open the, um, the magazine with a double spread of this picture of the guy uh, getting the net from above. Mm -hmm. yeah. oh, yeah. In order to get that yeah. picture, I used my climbing skills, so I mm -hmm. climbed on the mast of the boat, and the guy was working, and the other guy uh, shouted at me, Shinidogu, which means in Sicilian, go down from there. So uh, even there, I was like swinging from side to side and everything was, was alright. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the problem is not the sea itself, it's the smell. The smell of petrol, which is intense. The smell of fish, mm. the smell of blood, the smell of the nets. The nets it was were really, really... The nets? The nets. The nets smell so much. And so did they carry out the entire collection and processing of the fish on the boats or some did they of them, just some of them I wanted to analyze different boats to see how different methods work and the different approach of the the people within the boat you know the small crew so you have the a good picture of the single guy going fishing every morning since like for the past 50 years and then uh, the mass productive kind of boat so the boat with 18 people working on it this boat was, it's called Cons um, Lampara. So they put basically uh, lights on the sea, in the sea. Right. Fishes get attracted mm. by the, the, so they gather below this Lampara, this light. And then two boats, they surround the fish and the net just get them on the boat. So it's a massive way to, to, to get those fishes. And as soon as they, they've been caught, immediately the, the um, they were storing them in boxes, right. so putting them in boxes and storing them in the uh, in the fridge, immediately to, to be immediately sold later on. Yeah. Nice. Meanwhile, for example, the f the, when I went for tuna fishing and sword fishing, uh, they were just removing the main organs, which were uh, like um, the the heart, and putting them apart, and then just storing them in the fridge. Keeping them for the queen. Keeping you know, them for the yeah. queen, exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. You, you approached lots of different boats with yes. lots of different approaches to capturing the fish. So what, what was the overall aim of your body of work then? The overall aim was, first of all, to, to t depict the reality down there of the fishermen. So basically, whoever goes to buy fish or whoever goes to buy uh, a, a can of tuna, for example, they don't have idea what is behind. So I wanted to show what behind a single fish that they were hitting, they were cut, they were you know frying or cooking somewhere. And what was behind those fishes? And as I told you before, I didn't want to criticize anything. I wanted just to show the story how it was. So, for example, uh, even the cruelty, 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 cruelty. Sorry. Of the of the fishing itself, sometimes it may be kind of disgusting. For example, the the tuna fish completely um, surrounded by blood in this pool of blood. 
and actually people do not realize that Atuna may have so much blood in it and, and the high can be so alive as well. And also with that shot, I didn't want to criticize anything. I just said, that's, that's how it works. So you need to be aware of, of how it works and just you need to be aware of their life as well. How, how much time do they spend in order to catch the fish and how little is the money that they get from catching those fishes. And then from there, according to, uh, to who I was talking, I was just getting more information about the laws, the US, uh, uh, European Union laws. So I wanted also to discover a bit, a bit more how it works. So, and that's why it's a work in progress uh, body work. Right. Because so far it just depicted the whole society, the whole, uh, yes, community, how it works. And now I want to get more into the problematics which are affecting why it, there is this shifting into mass productive instead of keeping you know, the fishing and everything. And have you started? I will start yes. as soon as I go back in Sicily right. because we are planning to make um, to, to have an exhibition uh, in Easter or if it's not in Easter it will be in this summer uh, inside the boat I was okay. working so in, they will be they will be anchored on, in the harbor and, and you can go from boat to boat with passerellas and bridges mm -hmm. and all the picture will be displayed inside the boat yes. so nice. and from there we want to carry on with this project yeah. as well yeah. because as I told you I wanted to, to show how those people live. And because it's a big issue in Sicily, the, the, for example, swordfish. Uh, swordfish, we were the main producer of swordfish, the main fish, uh, we were fishing the main, uh, the biggest amount of swordfish in, in Europe. And nevertheless, uh, Spain got the, um, from the U uh, European Union law, I don't know in English, but they got the right to fish it instead right. of us, right. kind of. Okay. This is to make it really easy. And um, yeah, so all these things are really. So you I'm want really to delve into the politics. And yes, yeah. absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Do you I think mean, that's going to be easy, or? I think it's not going to be easy. No, no it's not going to be easy because. Yeah, and okay. if you talk to people, they always say they always have their own opinion, and it's not really the right one. So they always tell you something which is 50% true, 50% made up and sometimes they just don't want to talk about it mm. and sometimes i need to i see also things that are against the law and against my moral which i need to to keep low and say okay that's it i mean i, I cannot judge uh, i just see it um, so people are some people are reluctant to kind of get into the politics of it yes yeah it's going to be challenging right. yeah, exactly. yeah we'll see how it goes do you think do you think you can remain objective and and not judge when you're going to explore these kind of things? Well, I already been quite objective, kind of, because they were acting toward the fishes sometimes in a way that I would never think of acting because, yeah, but even there I was not judging them. It's their life. They, they have done it for all their life. So, yeah, I was just taking pictures and they knew I was taking pictures. So they were actually aware of me taking pictures and that I would possibly expose those actions to the public domain. And, and that was clear from the beginning. I'm gonna take all the pictures. If you don't want to do something or you don't want to have anything you know, published or just tell me before, and I will just disappear. But they were, they were hoping to, to have me even when the thing was not really clear, was not really, really beautiful to see. Kind of. For example, there is a, a, a picture which I, I particularly like. Unfortunately, it was too dark. I didn't, I didn't appreciate the composition, but it says a lot. It's there is a dead school of fishes just in front of the boat, mm -hmm. which which is the fishes that um, could not fit anymore in the boat. So they got more fishes than they could fit. Yeah. yeah. They filled up the fridge, and then they needed to throw tons of fishes. And and that, yes. I mean, I now. I will have something to say, of course. I have my idea, but I didn't want to show it through my picture. My I wanted to show that's what is going on, just you decide what to, what to say. Well, discards has been debated quite a lot recently. Mm -hmm. Hugh Fernley Whittingstall mm -hmm. started up a campaign called Fish Fight. Yes. And he tried to gather uh, support for trying to get the EU to address the issue of discards, where the situation that you've just described um, where fish is 
beyond their quota, beyond the 500 kilos of tuna, for example, or the fridges are full and then they just they chuck it over. Yeah. So there are campaigns, ongoing campaigns, that have been uh, pretty successful that are trying to address that issue of, of discarding otherwise edible fish that could be landed and could be sold and could be eaten yeah. um, rather than just thrown into the sea dead. Yeah, exactly. Do you know Brian Scary? Scary, the National Geographic photographer? No, he, 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 he did a kind of similar campaign. Okay. And he's amazing. Look mm -hmm. it up. Because yep. yeah, yeah, his well. photos are just really committed into the ocean, uh, preservation of the ocean. The problem of those campaigns, I think, is that they affect everybody. So this uh, wasted fish was just in one of the boats. Meanwhile, for example, the small fisherman is going to have the same problem. Uh, with the, uh, it's going to have actually, it's not going to throw anything, but it's going to have a lot of limitation from the, the law. Yeah. So it's not specific to different kind of fishes, of fishing, uh, fishing methods. Mm. So it would affect everybody. Yep. Yep. So I, I, I absolutely understand the um, social point of view and the environmental point of view. I absolutely agree with that. But I think it should be more specific in order to also help those fishermen that actually spend their, all their life uh, fishing. So why, why um, the fishermen that caught so much fish though that they couldn't fit into their fridge, are these sort of younger fishermen that are less kind of in tune with the sea or why, why catch so much? Well, because the, this was the kind of commercial boat. Yeah, okay. So they were going out for... So they were just kind of... Exactly. Yeah, okay. That, there was no sentimental, no romance no, behind. Yeah. Meanwhile, for example, for the other fishermen boat, they were really attached to the boat. They were really attached to the sea. And kind of uh, the hold of the sea of Amiway. Yeah. There was this feeling, this connection between the fishermen itself and the fish. So you, did you find that they didn't, they didn't tend to overfish? They were much better at fishing only what they needed or could yeah, exactly. keep. They didn't overfish. They didn't overfish because they were just... And it's, it's completely different, the philosophy behind fishing. For example, when they, when, when they were fishing tuna or sawfish, they were actually throwing hooks and, and recoiling them oh, yeah. and fighting yeah. the fish. So there was this fight between the human being and the fish, yeah. which is kind of, you are gaining your fish. I can much more understand this fight than actually going there, throwing um, lights and gathering as much as you yeah, can. Yeah. That's kind of cheating in some terms and, and it's not controllable because you, got, you just get whatever. You can get sardines as well as swordfish as well as whatever. Meanwhile, when you just throw uh, through um, hooks with that kind of bite, you know what you're going to ca catch. And it's never overfishing with, with, with that kind of method. So yeah, as bad as it can be, it's much better to, to do this kind of fishing, you know, controlled, sustainable fishing than overfishing. Yeah, and there's a kind of connection, like you said, between the man and the fish. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. It's like, before, one of the researchers I did before starting this project was reading a lot anyway in this book. And there is a sentence that is like, something along with the, this line even if I respect you I'm gonna kill you fish so yeah this kind of feeling was the feeling I felt in most of the boats but as, as far as the when the boat became bigger so more money were involved they were just forgetting about the sea forgetting about uh, the environment they were just getting as much as they could yeah it's very indiscriminate yes well, yeah so how long did you actually spend documenting these, these boats? Uh, I started in April last year and I spent the first week with them and then I came back in June or July and I spent uh, on and off from the boat uh, uh, one month and a half. So going there and then in September I kept going there to interview, to take picture uh, on shore so of the fishermen uh, in the village or in their house. Mm -hmm. So I started in April and finished the first session in September and all together, I think a couple of months okay. on and off from yeah. boat. I also moved to the village in, in July. Right. Uh, yeah, I was, I was a guest of one of the fishermen, so he gave me the house and the, the small room. 
and to be yeah. Very nice. And it was really hard for me to tell them that I was not going to eat fishes because they were rewarding me with a lot of fish. Yeah, right. so <laughs> <laughs> mm, okay. <laughs> so you've already mentioned uh, the boats kind of moving and you were climbing up yeah. this uh, the pole. Um, what, can you tell us a bit about the challenges of photographing at sea and did you have special equipment or because you've taken some interesting angles such as the one from above and mm -hmm. so you've obviously it's obviously kind of a, a precarious yes <laughs> I think yes I think it was most of the time I was shooting I was kind of hanging from somewhere <laughs> yeah. or sprawling on, on the uh, on the bottom of the, the boat and um, the equipment want, was reduced to minimum mm. because I could not carry a lot into inside the boat in the boat so basically I had my camera uh, two lenses 150 millimeter that I almost never used, and a 1740 uh, for a wider uh, perspective. Because when I, when I thought about the picture I wanted to, to get, I wanted absolutely to get pictures inside the boat, and the boat was quite narrow, so I wanted to get wider. And then an external small LED light, just to, uh, to be sure that some details would be actually lit up, because the, the condition of light were really low all the time I was, because most of the action is uh, at night or in the dusk. Uh, so the, the light was really low all the time. And my average ISO was between uh, 6,000 and 12,000. All, all of them, they are taken between 6,000 and 12,000. Yeah, because the light was really almost dark every time. And as a protection, I, used, uh, um, I bought a kind of rub which covered my camera. So it's kind of grip which fit to the camera, is an outfit for my camera. And then uh, uh, a filter in front just to, to avoid the, the sole to, mm. to get into the, the frontal lens. And how did you kind of juggle all the movement of the boat trying to take pictures? Just, do you find well, that you, challenging? You just get adapted. Yeah, you, okay. f you, you follow the flow and you move with the boat and you, you understand how, how to shoot. So you understand, for example, okay, it's going to move like this, <laughs> and then you shoot. <laughs> yeah. And did you explore multimedia in any way, video and audio? Um, I, I explore multimedia video-wise, so I got also some video, right. but I was more focused on photography at that point. Apart from the interview, which was a 20 minutes interview uh, with this guy that I recorded, and now I want to do a multimedia piece, so I started getting all the picture together and I don't know if you if, if you know this kind of 3D thing that you can do with uh, After Effects. So I'm cutting basically some of the picture, I, I cut them in, in different layers. Uh, right I import yeah. them in After Effects and they yeah. go through the layers in order to give more moves, more yeah. dynamism and, uh, to the multimedia. Yeah. And I would like to, uh, to do something for the exhibition. Mm -hmm. So I would love to project this multimedia piece in the main square, and so yeah. And I'm working with a musician. She is always write music uh, for my multimedia piece, or she get inspired my pic from my uh, my pictures. Mm -hmm. So there is this exchange. Nice. And she brought an amazing piece for Fisherman, which is just really beautiful, really, really amazing. Mm -hmm. It it looked like that she was there with me. Right. And I was exactly listening to these noises and this music when I was there. Has there been any uptake of your story? Because you mentioned Geo were interested in doing a double page spread of uh, one particular image. Has any other mainstream media picked it up? Uh, mainstream, not yet. Mainstream, not yet. Only this uh, self-publication, which has, uh, which I did. Because I started as a documentary story for a, for a magazine, thought, right. and then I just kept exploring and exploring and I really loved the, uh, the life of the, I, I really love understanding how other people live. That's why the Peruvian uh, reportage, and I did a reportage in, um, in London called People of London. Right. Basically for six months I was hanging around London, stopping people, asking them a portrait and, and, and a story beyond the outfit. Yeah. Just because I was, I wanted to get uh, overall understanding of London. I was new here, so I wanted to discover as much as I could. And the best way to discover uh, a place is actually understanding the people living in that place. Yes. Uh, and then staying with them more and more, my body work kind of grew. 
and the suggestion of one of my tutors in LCC, they told me, why don't you try with a book? Because it's really visual and it's too big, kind of too big in order to be crammed in few pictures, because few pictures will not tell as much as the whole book. I was like, okay, why not? And so I, I, I managed the book and thanks to the administration in South Sicily, uh, we will uh, spread the book in, 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 the, in that particular area. Okay. So we have some stuff going on. And the launching of the book will be with the exhibition as well. Right. Mm -hmm. And how have you found the process of self-publishing? I think it's, it's interesting because I got to understand how actually uh, book design will work. So I learned a lot about editing and combining pictures together in order to tell a story, which in a book is, is really extended because it's like 100 pages. So you need to, to keep a constancy, visual constancy in, uh, in, 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 uh, in your book. You cannot mess it up. And it was interesting how even two pictures together would say something and just change one picture would say completely something else. So I needed to be really careful what I wanted to say, what, which picture could be combined and which picture would say something different, combining them together. And how do you go about editing down your pictures? Do you work with somebody else or somebody help you? Or? Um, I always wait at least one month before editing them down because I'm too attached sometimes to, to my body work that I either would erase everything or I would keep <laughs> everything. So it's, I always kind of do a first selection and then send it over to my best friends and and, and and few people that I just barely know. Because sometimes your best friend is gonna be also your worst enemy in work-wise, because it's gonna tell you, oh, I love them all. Yeah, yeah. So, like my mom, oh, I love them all, yeah, keep this, keep this. So you just gather even more pictures that you actually uh, give them, give them. And then little by little, I, I keep editing, editing, editing. A few months later, I rediscovered new picture that I like and I erase others, so it's a, a, pro a process that goes on. Mm. And then you edit them every time, according to the magazine you're approaching, to the story that you want to tell, and to the kind of people that are gonna see your, your pictures. Uh, so I think it's a work in progress. Every time you, you submit your work to somebody, you need to, to have a good editing, a proper editing. Yeah, but for the book, that's kind of one, that's stationary though, isn't it? Once you've edited that, that's it. And that's your decision. You yeah, get to decide exactly, what goes in exactly. Yeah, exactly. With yeah. the book, I wanted to, uh, to convey the overall experience of living with them. And so once you read the book, you see the book, and you understand that it's something much more different from what you actually thought about fishermen, fishing, and fishes. But 100 pages, that's a, that's a big book. For the, this is your first publication. Yes. I, I um, it's. I don't remember how many pictures are in there. It's quite big because, well, there is an um, uh, intro of a couple of pages about, it's a small piece of my diary, meanwhile I was there. Right, yep. And with some quotes by, uh, from some of the fishermen I, w I went with. And there are a lot of pages which are white. And I've been criticized for this because in Italy we still don't use white pages to contemplate one picture. A lot of people th uh, thought that actually in the PDF something was missing. They told mm -hmm. me, yes, half of the book is missing. I said, no, 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 wait, it's just there. I didn't want to put anything uh, beside, just right. not to confuse you, not to right. tell other stories. And I think in order to understand how to make book, you need to, uh, to have a look at as many books as you can. Mm. So basically I spent ages in our library and just picking up books and seeing, reading and understanding how those decisions have been done and why the photographer did that decision, made this de the decision. I think that's an interesting point though about the book, that it's also quite culturally specific, isn't it? Yeah. So in Italy, that idea of having a blank page, they, they don't do that. Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's very, oh, for example, one of my best friends of the course, uh, she told me, well, in Japan, the idea of uh, this table book, it's much more uh, expanded. It's it's really a big business there. Mm. Meanwhile, here it has still to be discovered. Mm. This kind of thing. In Italy, we don't have this stuff. I think. <laughs> yeah. When they see a white page, they, like my father. My father still cannot understand why there is a white page. <laughs> Every time I speak to him, but you know what? You should put some text in it. <laughs> and um, you divide the book up with the different types of fish. 
yes, because I didn't want to. Uh, I wanted to divide the book according to the boat I was with. I was in. So each chapter is a boat, and the small fish at the beginning of the book is the fish that this boat was going for right, okay, mainly. Yeah. And had you already decided that at the beginning that you would divide the project in that way, or did that kind of come? Uh, no, work. it came later. Yeah. It came later after uh, when I started organizing my body work. I was thinking, how shall I put everything together uh, in order not to make it look like too much or too repetitive? So I was thinking either with um, uh, just time-wise, how did I spend my time, or other ideas. But at the end, I thought, okay, let's let's go for boats and for captain. Because I wanted to see, I wanted to show for each boat the differences in uh, in terms of method and in terms of connection with the sea and connection with the fish. So you have the mass productive boat, and you see those fishes, for example, the dead uh, leftover, and then you have the completely different one with uh, 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 the small familiar fish at the end of the book, and they are just you know weighting their fish with a small scale because they got that much and not more. So this kind of thing. To finish up. Can you recommend uh, another documentary photographer who's documented something local to them? So they can be anywhere in the world, but they've documented a story that's local to them. Yeah, well, one of my colleagues, at the moment, the, thi the first documentary photographer I, um, I think about is one of my colleagues called Eduardo Liel, and he did the course with me, and I always admire his work a lot. He did a project about the tor uh, Toreros. Right, yeah. Bullfighting. Yeah, Bullfighting, yeah. Yeah, in okay. Portugal. Yeah. And now he's in Venezuela. Yeah. And basically, it's at Venezuela for the time that he spent there. So for him, it's really local. And why I pick him up is because he really believes in, in documenting stories and in, in telling stories. But actually, media do not care that much about actually what story should be said. And he has been beaten up a few, few weeks ago. Right. And the, the police uh, got the camera and all the work he did, and nobody spoke about it here apart from a few interviews that he did locally there. So, for example, the stories he's telling, I think they are amazing, but they are not spread because apparently nobody is interested. I think he's a great photographer and yeah. documentarist as well. Yeah. Right. Okay, well, yeah. thank you very well, much for your time. Much. Thank you very yeah, much. Really, really yeah. interesting. Thank you for listening to this documentary photography review podcast. To find out more about Roberto and his work, visit his site at robertozampinophoto.com. For show notes with links to the photographers, organizations, and events mentioned in the podcast, go to documentaryphotoreview.com forward slash podcasts and navigate to Roberto's podcast page. The next episode will be available on the 1st of May, and within it I will be introducing something new to what Documentary Photography Review has to offer. In the meantime, please visit the site and explore the photo essays published there. There is some really strong work and many underreported stories are explored. If you're a documentary photographer and you'd like to have your work published on the site, please go to documentaryphotoreview.com and click on Submit Work in the menu. Lastly, please spread the word far and wide and share this and our other podcasts with anyone you know who might be interested in documentary photography or the subjects of the work discussed. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, take care.